Part Two, Chapter Fifteen of *The Little Nugget* by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Little Nugget*, Chapter Fifteen. One. What shall we do? said Audrey. She looked at me hopefully, as if I were a mine of ideas. Her voice was level, without a suggestion of fear in it. Women have the gift of being courageous at times when they might legitimately give way. It is part of their unexpectedness. This was certainly such an occasion. Daylight would bring us relief, for I did not suppose that even Buck McGinnis would care to conduct a siege which might be interrupted by the arrival of tradesmen's carts, but while the darkness lasted we were completely cut off from the world. With the destruction of the telephone wire, our only link with civilization had been snapped. Even had the night been less stormy than it was, there was no chance of the noise of our warfare reaching the ears of anyone who might come to the rescue. It was as Sam had said. Buck's energy united to his strategy formed a strong combination. Broadly speaking, there are only two courses open to a beleaguered garrison. It can stay where it is or it can make a sortie. I considered the second of these courses. It was possible that Sam and his allies had departed in the automobile to get reinforcements, leaving the coast temporarily clear, in which case, by escaping from the house at once, we might be able to slip unobserved through the grounds and reach the village in safety. To support this theory there was the fact that the car, on its late visit, had contained only the chauffeur and the two ambassadors, while Sam had spoken of the remainder of Buck's gang as being in readiness to attack in the event of my not coming to terms. That might mean that they were waiting at Buck's headquarters, wherever those might be, at one of the cottages down the road, I imagined, and in the interval, before the attack began, it might be possible for us to make our sortie with success. "'Is Ogden in bed?' I asked. "'Yes.' Will you go and get him up as quickly as you can?" I strained my eyes at the window, but it was impossible to see anything. The rain was still falling heavily. If the drive had been full of men they would have been invisible to me. Presently Audrey returned, followed by Ogden. The little nugget was yawning the aggrieved yawns of one roused from his beauty sleep. "'What's all this?' he demanded. "'Listen,' I said. Buck McGinnis and Smooth Sam Fisher have come after you. They are outside now. Don't be frightened." He snorted derisively. "'Who's frightened? I guess they won't hurt me. How do you know it's them?' "'They have just been here. The man who called himself White, the butler, was really Sam Fisher. He has been waiting an opportunity to get you all the term.' "'White? He was Sam Fisher?' He chuckled admiringly. Say, he's a wonder. They have gone to fetch the rest of the gang. Why don't you call the cops? They have cut the wire. His only emotions at the news seemed to be amusement and a renewed admiration for Smooth Sam. He smiled broadly, the little brute. He's a wonder, he repeated. I guess he's smooth all right. He's the limit. He'll get me all right this trip. I bet you a nickel he wins out." I found his attitude trying. 
that he, the cause of all the trouble, should be so obviously regarding it as a sporting contest got up for his entertainment was hard to bear. And the fact that, whatever might happen to myself, he was in no danger, comforted me not at all. If I could have felt that we were in any way companions in peril, I might have looked on the bulbous boy with quite a friendly eye. As it was, I nearly kicked him. "'We had better waste no time,' suggested Audrey, "'if we are going.' "'I think we ought to try it,' I said. "'What's that?' asked the Nugget. "'Go where?' "'We are going to steal out through the back way and try to slip through to the village.' The Nugget's comment on the scheme was brief and to the point. He did not embarrass me with fulsome praise of my strategic genius. "'Of all the fool games!' he said simply, in this rain, no, sir. This new complication was too much for me. In planning out my maneuvers I had taken his cooperation for granted. I had looked on him as so much baggage, the impedimenta of the retreating army. And behold, a mutineer! I took him by the scruff of the neck and shook him. It was a relief to my feelings and a sound move. The argument was one which he understood. "'Oh, all right,' he said. "'Anything you like. Come on. But it sounds to me like darn foolishness.' If nothing else had happened to spoil the success of that sortie, the Nugget's depressing attitude would have done so. Of all things, it seemed to me, a forlorn hope should be undertaken with a certain enthusiasm and optimism, if it is to have a chance of being successful. Ogden threw a gloom over the proceedings from the start. He was cross and sleepy, and he condemned the expedition unequivocally. As we moved towards the back door, he kept up a running stream of abusive comment. I silenced him before cautiously unbolting the door, but he had said enough to damp my spirits. I do not know what effect it would have had on Napoleon's tactics if his army, say before Austerlitz, had spoken of his maneuvers as a fool game and of himself as a big chump, but I doubt if it would have stimulated him. The back door of Sanstead House opened on to a narrow yard, paved with flagstones and shut in on all sides but one by walls. To the left was the outhouse where the coal was stored, a squat barn-like building. To the right a wall that appeared to have been erected by the architect in an outburst of pure whimsicality. It just stood there. It served no purpose that I had ever been able to discover, except to act as a cat's clubhouse. Tonight, however, I was thankful for this wall. It formed an important piece of cover. By keeping in its shelter it was possible to work round the angle of the coal-shed, enter the stable-yard, and, by making a detour across the football-field, avoid the drive altogether and it was the drive, in my opinion, that might be looked on as the danger-zone. The Nugget's complaints, which I had momentarily succeeded in checking, burst out afresh as the rain swept in at the open door and lashed our faces. Certainly it was not an ideal night for a ramble. The wind was blowing through the opening at the end of the yard with a compressed violence due to the confined space. There was a suggestion in our position of the cave of the winds under Niagara Falls, the verisimilitude of which was increased by the stream of water that poured down from the gutter above our heads. 
The Nugget found it unpleasant, and said so shrilly. I pushed him out into the storm, still protesting, and we began to creep across the yard. Halfway to the first point of importance of our journey, the corner of the coal-shed, I halted the expedition. There was a sudden lull in the wind, and I took advantage of it to listen. From somewhere beyond the wall, apparently near the house, sounded the muffled note of the automobile. The siege party had returned. There was no time to be lost. Apparently the possibility of a sortie had not yet occurred to Sam, or he would have hardly left the back door unguarded. But a general of his astuteness was certain to remedy the mistake soon, and our freedom of action might be a thing of moments. It behoved us to reach the stable-yard as quickly as possible. Once there, we should be practically through the enemy's lines. Administering a kick to the nugget, who showed a disposition to linger and talk about the weather, I moved on, and we reached the corner of the coal-shed in safety. We had now arrived at the really perilous stage in our journey. Having built this wall to a point level with the end of the coal-shed, the architect had apparently wearied of the thing and given up, for it ceased abruptly, leaving us with a matter of half a dozen yards of open ground to cross, with nothing to screen us from the watchers on the drive. The flagstones, moreover, stopped at this point. On the open space was loose gravel. Even if the darkness allowed us to make the crossing unseen, there was the risk that we might be heard. It was a moment for a flash of inspiration, and I was waiting for one, when that happened which took the problem out of my hands. From the interior of the shed on our left there came a sudden scrabbling of feet over loose coal, and through the square opening in the wall, designed for the peaceful purpose of taking in sacks, climbed two men. A pistol cracked. From the drive came an answering shout. We had been ambushed. I had misjudged Sam. He had not overlooked the possibility of a sortie. It is the accidents of life that turn the scale in a crisis. The opening through which the men had leapt was scarcely a couple of yards behind the spot where we were standing. If they had leapt fairly and kept their feet, they would have been on us before we could have moved. But fortune ordered it that, zeal outrunning discretion, the first of the two should catch his foot in the woodwork and fall on all fours, while the second, unable to check his spring, alighted on top of him, and, judging from the stifled yell which followed, must have kicked him in the face. In the moment of their downfall I was able to form a plan and execute it. The stables! I shouted the words to Audrey in the act of snatching up the nugget and starting to run. She understood. She did not hesitate in the direction of the house for even the instant which might have undone us, but was with me at once. And we were across the open space and in the stable-yard before the first of the men in the drive loomed up through the darkness. Half of the wooden double gate of the yard was open, and the other half served us as a shield. They fired as they ran, at random, I think, for it was too dark for them to have seen us clearly, and two bullets slapped against the gate. A third struck the wall above our heads and ricocheted off into the night. But before they could fire again we were in the stables, the door slammed behind us, and I had dumped the nugget on the floor and was shooting the heavy bolts into their places. 
Footsteps clattered over the flagstones and stopped outside. Some weighty body plunged against the door. Then there was silence. The first round was over. The stables, as is the case in most English country houses, had been, in its palmy days, the glory of Sandstead House. In whatever other respect the British architect of that period may have fallen short, he never scamped his work on the stables. He built them strong and solid, with walls fitted to repel the assaults of the weather, and possibly those of men as well. For the Boones in their day had been mighty owners of racehorses, at a time when men with money at stake did not stick at trifles, and it was prudent to see to it that the spot where the favorite was housed had something of the nature of a fortress. The walls were thick, the door solid, the windows barred with iron. We could scarcely have found a better haven of refuge. Under Mr. Abney's rule the stables had lost their original character. They had been divided into three compartments, each separated by a stout wall. One compartment became a gymnasium, another the carpenter's shop, the third, in which we were, remained a stable, though in these degenerate days no horse ever set foot inside it, its only use being to provide a place for the odd-job man to clean shoes. The mangers, which had once held fodder, were given over now to brushes and pots of polish. In term time bicycles were stored in the loose-box which had once echoed to the tramping of Darby favorites. I groped about among the pots and brushes, and found a candle-end which I lit. I was running a risk, but it was necessary to inspect our ground. I had never troubled really to examine this stable before, and I wished to put myself in touch with its geography. I blew out the candle, well content with what I had seen. The only two windows were small, high up, and excellently barred. Even if the enemy fired through them, there were half a dozen spots where we should be perfectly safe. Best of all, in the event of the door being carried by assault, we had a second line of defense in a loft. A ladder against the back wall led to it, by way of a trap-door. Circumstances had certainly been kind to us in driving us to this apparently impregnable shelter. On concluding my inspection I became aware that the Nugget was still occupied with his grievances. I think the shots must have stimulated his nerve-centers, for he had abandoned the languid drawl with which, in happier moments, he was wont to comment on life's happenings and was dealing with the situation with a staccato briskness. "'Of all the darned fool layouts I ever struck, this is the limit. What do those idiots think they're doing, shooting us up that way? It went within an inch of my head. It might have killed me. Gee, and I'm all wet. I'm catching cold. It's all through your blamed foolishness, bringing us out here. Why couldn't we stay in the house?' We could not have kept them out of the house for five minutes," I explained. We can hold this place. Who wants to hold it? I don't. What does it matter if they do get me? I don't care. I've got a good mind to walk straight out through that door and let them rope me in. It would serve Dad right. It would teach him not to send me away from home to any darn school again. What did he want to do it for? I was all right where I was. I—' 
A loud hammering on the door cut off his eloquence. The intermission was over, and the second round had begun. It was pitch dark in the stable now that I had blown out the candle, and there is something about a combination of noise and darkness which tries the nerves. If mine had remained steady, I should have ignored the hammering. For the sound, it appeared to be made by some wooden instrument, a mallet from the carpenter's shop I discovered later, and the door could be relied on to hold its own without my intervention. For a novice to violence, however, to maintain a state of calm inaction is the most difficult feat of all. I was irritated and worried by the noise, and exaggerated its importance. It seemed to me that it must be stopped at once. A moment before I had bruised my shins against an empty packing-case, which had found its way with other lumber into the stable. I groped for this, swung it noiselessly into position beneath the window, and standing on it looked out. I found the catch of the window and opened it. There was nothing to be seen, but the sound of the hammering became more distinct. And pushing an arm through the bars, I emptied my pistol at a venture. As a practical move, the action had flaws. The shots cannot have gone anywhere near their vague target. But as a demonstration, it was a wonderful success. The yard became suddenly full of dancing bullets. They struck the flagstones, bounded off, chipped the bricks of the far wall, ricocheted from those, buzzed in all directions, and generally behaved in a manner calculated to unman the stoutest-hearted. The siege-party did not stop to argue. They stampeded as one man. I could hear them clattering across the flagstones to every point of the compass. In a few seconds silence prevailed, broken only by the swish of the rain. Round two had been brief, hardly worthy to be called a round at all, and, like round one, it had ended wholly in our favor. I jumped down from my packing-case, swelling with pride. I had had no previous experience of this sort of thing, yet here I was handling the affair like a veteran. I considered that I had a right to feel triumphant. I lit the candle again and beamed protectively upon the garrison. The nugget was sitting on the floor, gaping feebly, and awed for the moment into silence. Audrey, in the far corner, looked pale but composed. Her behavior was perfect. There was nothing for her to do, and she was doing it with a quiet self-control which won my admiration. Her manner seemed to me exactly suited to the exigencies of the situation. With a super-competent daredevil like myself in charge of affairs, all she had to do was wait and not get in the way. "'I didn't hit anybody,' I announced. "'But they ran like rabbits. They are all over Hampshire.' I laughed indulgently. I could afford an attitude of tolerant amusement towards the enemy. Where they come back? Possibly, and in that case, I felt in my left-hand coat-pocket, I had better be getting ready. I felt in my right-hand coat-pocket. Ready, I repeated blankly. A clammy coldness took possession of me. My voice trailed off into nothingness for in neither pocket was there a single one of the shells with which I had fancied that I was abundantly provided. In moments of excitement man is apt to make mistakes. I had made mine when, starting out on the sortie, 
I had left all my ammunition in the house. 2. I should like to think that it was an unselfish desire to spare my companion's anxiety that made me keep my discovery to myself, but I am afraid that my reticence was due far more to the fact that I shrank from letting the nugget discover my imbecile carelessness. Even in times of peril one retains one's human weaknesses, and I felt that I could not face his comments. If he had permitted a certain note of querulousness to creep into his conversation already, the imagination recoiled from the thought of the caustic depths he would reach now should I reveal the truth. I tried to make things better with cheery optimism. "'They won't come back,' I said stoutly, and tried to believe it. The nugget, as usual, struck the jarring note. "'Well, then, let's beat it,' he said. I don't want to spend the night in this darned ice-house. I tell you, I'm catching cold. My chest's weak. If you're so dead certain you've scared them away, let's quit." I was not prepared to go as far as this. They may be somewhere near hiding. Well, what if they are? I don't mind being kidnapped. Let's go. I think we ought to wait, said Audrey. Of course, I said. It would be madness to go out now." "'Oh, pshaw!' said the little nugget, and from this point onwards punctuated the proceedings with a hacking cough. I had never really believed that my demonstration had brought the siege to a definite end. I anticipated that there would be some delay before the renewal of hostilities, but I was too well acquainted with Buck McGinnis's tenacity to imagine that he would abandon his task because a few random shots had spread momentary panic in his ranks. He had all the night before him, and sooner or later he would return. I had judged him correctly. Many minutes dragged wearily by without a sign from the enemy. Then, listening at the window, I heard footsteps crossing the yard and voices talking in cautious undertones. The fight was on once more. A bright light streamed through the window, flooding the opening and spreading in a wide circle on the ceiling. It was not difficult to understand what had happened. They had gone to the automobile and come back with one of the headlamps, an astute move in which I seemed to see the finger of Sam. The danger spot thus rendered harmless they renewed their attack on the door with a reckless vigor. The mallet had been superseded by some heavier instrument, of iron this time. I think it must have been the jack from the automobile. It was a more formidable weapon altogether than the mallet, and even our good oak door quivered under it. A splintering of wood decided me that the time had come to retreat to our second line of entrenchments. How long the door would hold it was impossible to say but I doubted if it was more than a matter of minutes. Relighting my candle, which I had extinguished from motives of economy, I caught Audrey's eye and jerked my head towards the ladder. "'You go first, I whispered. The nugget watched her disappear through the trap-door, then turned to me with an air of resolution. "'If you think you're going to get me up there, you've got another guess coming. I'm going to wait here till they get in and let them take me. I'm about tired of this foolishness." It was no time for verbal argument. I collected him, a kicking handful, 
bore him to the ladder, and pushed him through the opening. He uttered one of his devastating squeals. The sound seemed to encourage the workers outside like a trumpet blast. The blows on the door redoubled. I climbed the ladder and shut the trap door behind me. The air of the loft was close and musty and smelt of mildewed hay. It was not the sort of spot which one would have selected of one's own free will to sit in for any length of time. There was a rustling noise, and a rat scurried across the rickety floor, drawing a startled gasp from Audrey and a disgusted, Oh, piffle! from the nugget. Whatever merits this final refuge might have as a stronghold, it was beyond question a noisome place. The beating on the stable door was working up to a crescendo. Presently there came a crash that shook the floor on which we sat and sent our neighbors, the rats, sculling to and fro in a perfect frenzy of perturbation. The light of the automobile lamp poured in through the numerous holes and chinks which the passage of time had made in the old boards. There was one large hole near the center which produced a sort of searchlight effect and allowed us for the first time to see what manner of place it was in which we had entrenched ourselves. The loft was high and spacious. The roof must have been some seven feet above our heads. I could stand upright without difficulty. In the proceedings beneath us there had come a lull. The mystery of our disappearance had not baffled the enemy for long, for almost immediately the rays of the lamp had shifted and begun to play on the trap-door. I heard somebody climb the ladder, and the trap-door creaked gently as a hand tested it. I had taken up a position beside it, ready, if the bolt gave way, to do what I could with the butt of my pistol, my only weapon. But the bolt, though rusty, was strong, and the man dropped to the ground again. Since then, except for occasional snatches of whispered conversation, I had heard nothing. Suddenly Sam's voice spoke. Mr. Burns! I saw no advantage in remaining silent. Well? Haven't you had enough of this? You've given us a mighty good run for our money, but you can see for yourself that you're through now. I'd hate like anything for you to get hurt. Pass the kid down, and we'll call it off. He paused. Well? he said. Why don't you answer? I did. Did you? I didn't hear you. I smiled. You mean to stick it out? Don't be foolish, Sonny. The boys here are mad enough at you already. What's the use of getting yourself in bad for nothing? We've got you in a pocket. I know all about that gun of yours, young fellow. I had a suspicion what had happened and I've been into the house and found the shells you forgot to take with you. So, if you were thinking of making a bluff in that direction, forget it." The exposure had the effect I had anticipated. "'Of all the chumps!' exclaimed the nugget caustically. "'You ought to be in a home. Well, I guess you'll agree to end this foolishness now. Let's go down and get it over and have some peace. I'm getting pneumonia.' "'You're quite right, Mr. Fisher,' I said. "'But don't forget, I still have the pistol, even if I haven't the shells. The first man who tries to come up here will have a headache tomorrow.' 
I shouldn't bank on it, Sonny. Come along, kiddo. You're done. Be good and own it. We can't wait much longer. You'll have to try. Buck's voice broke in on the discussion, quite unintelligible, except that it was obviously wrathful. Oh, well, I heard Sam say resignedly, and then there was silence again below. I resumed my watch over the trap-door, encouraged. This parleying, I thought, was an admission of failure on the part of the besiegers. I did not credit Sam with a real concern for my welfare, thereby doing him an injustice. I can see now that he spoke perfectly sincerely. The position, though I was unaware of it, really was hopeless, for the reason that, like most positions, it had a flank as well as a front. In estimating the possibilities of attack, I had figured assaults as coming only from below. I had omitted from my calculations the fact that the loft had a roof. It was a scraping on the tiles above my head that first brought the new danger-point to my notice. There followed the sound of heavy hammering, and with it came a sickening realization of the truth of what Sam had said. We were beaten. I was too paralyzed by the unexpectedness of the attack to form any plan, and, indeed, I do not think that there was anything I could have done. I was unarmed and helpless. I stood there, waiting for the inevitable. Affairs moved swiftly. Plaster rained down onto the wooden floor. I was vaguely aware that the nugget was speaking, but I did not listen to him. A gap appeared in the roof and widened. I could hear the heavy breathing of the man as he wrenched at the tiles. And then the climax arrived, with anti-climax following so swiftly upon it that the two were almost simultaneous. I saw the worker on the roof cautiously poise himself in the opening, hunched up like some strange ape. The next moment he had sprung. As his feet touched the floor there came a rending, splintering crash. The air was filled with a choking dust, and he was gone. The old worn-out boards had shaken under my tread. They had given way in complete ruin beneath this sharp onslaught. The rays of the lamp, which had filtered in like pencils of light through crevices, now shone in a great lake in the center of the floor. In the stable below all was confusion. Everybody was speaking at once. The hero of the late disaster was groaning horribly, for which he certainly had good reason. I did not know the extent of his injuries, but a man does not do that sort of thing with impunity. The next of the strange happenings of the night now occurred. I had not been giving the nugget a great deal of my attention for some time, other and more urgent matters occupying me. His action at this juncture, consequently, came as a complete and crushing surprise. I was edging my way cautiously towards the jagged hole in the center of the floor, in the hope of seeing something of what was going on below, when from close beside me his voice screamed, "'It's me! Ogden Ford! I'm coming!' And without further warning he ran to the hole, swung himself over, and dropped. Manna falling from the skies in the wilderness never received a more whole-hearted welcome. Howls and cheers and ear-splitting whoops filled the air. The babble of talk broke out again. 
some exuberant person found expression of his joy in emptying his pistol at the ceiling, to my acute discomfort, the spot he had selected as a target chancing to be within a foot of where I stood. Then they moved off in a body, still cheering. The fight was over. I do not know how long it was before I spoke. It may have been some minutes. I was dazed with the swiftness with which the final stages of the drama had been played out. If I had given him more of my attention, I might have divined that Ogden had been waiting his opportunity to make some such move, but, as it was, the possibility had not even occurred to me, and I was stunned. In the distance I heard the automobile moving off down the drive. The sound roused me. "'Well, we may as well go,' I said dully. I lit the candle and held it up. Audrey was standing against the wall, her face white and set. I raised the trapdoor and followed her down the ladder. The rain had ceased and the stars were shining. After the closeness of the loft the clean wet air was delicious. For a moment we stopped, held by the peace and stillness of the night. Then, quite suddenly, she broke down. It was the unexpectedness of it that first threw me off my balance. In all the time I had known her I had never before seen Audrey in tears. Always, in the past, she had borne the blows of fate with a stoical indifference which had alternately attracted and repelled me, according as my mood led me to think it courage or insensibility. In the old days it had done much, this trait of hers, to rear a barrier between us. It had made her seem aloof and unapproachable. Subconsciously, I suppose, it had offended my egoism that she should be able to support herself in times of trouble and not feel it necessary to lean on me. And now the barrier had fallen. The old independence, the almost aggressive self-reliance, had vanished. A new Audrey had revealed herself. She was sobbing helplessly, standing quite still, her arms hanging and her eyes staring blankly before her. There was something in her attitude so hopeless, so beaten, that the pathos of it seemed to cut me like a knife. Audrey! The stars glittered in the little pools among the worn flagstones. The night was very still. Only the steady drip of water from the trees broke the silence. A great wave of tenderness seemed to sweep from my mind everything in the world but her. Everything broke abruptly that had been checking me, stifling me, holding me gagged and bound since the night when our lives had come together again after those five long years. I forgot Cynthia, my promise, everything. Audrey! She was in my arms, clinging to me, murmuring my name. The darkness was about us like a cloud. And then she had slipped from me and was gone. End of Part 2 Chapter 15